Welcome to the Glorious Professionals podcast brought to you by GoRuck Media. I'm Jason McCarthy here with Emily. Let's dig in. My dear sister Jala, it isn't that the Taliban are getting close to Kabul. The truth is we are surrounded. Ghani, the president, has fled the country and abandoned us. We are trapped and cannot flee. There is no hope. This is the beginning of a voice message I received earlier today from my closest Afghan friend who lives in downtown Kabul. It is the reality on the ground. She has been working with the British for many years, educating women and doing nation building work. This work now leaves a target on her back, so she is hiding with her family in a friend's basement. She has a visa, but can't leave. The airport is overrun with foreign evacuees, so the Afghans who should be evacuated have no choice but to hide. Right now, the best I can do to help is to remind people that this is happening now, today, this minute. God help my friends. I remember Kabul a decade ago when I first met Rabia. It was recovering, opening up, colorful and alive. We could walk through the mall and the market together on sunny days and be happy. This is the Kabul where I met my husband. This is the Kabul that still has a piece of my heart. Tomorrow, this could be gone. I do pray for the safety of my friends. However, my faith wavers. Help me believe that the good ones will survive. Help me believe that all of the hard work we've done and they've done will not have been in vain. Emily and I are here in Jack's Beach, Florida. Today, our guest is teacher, trainer, academic, humanitarian, good friend, Jala Shaw. She began her teaching career with the Peace Corps in China, which took her to other places as well. But today, we really want to focus on her time in Afghanistan from 2010 to 2012 and, and the friendships she made there that endure to this day. While serving through the U.S. Department of State, she trained teachers at Kabul Education University and worked with teachers and students in the public school system in Kabul. She lived in Kabul in a local apartment outside of the green zone, something that seems highly unlikely to be repeated by any Western females anytime in the near future. Jala, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, you guys. So I wish this was not something we were talking about right now. Yeah, me too. So the, the hard question up front is how are your friends doing? What, what are we tracking? Yeah, right now the situation on the ground is changing by the minute one of my friend's families has gotten out since Monday morning. One friend's family is at the airport waiting. They have a seven-month-old baby, and they've been at the airport for 38 hours. 15 minutes ago, I checked in with them. They've had no food or water, no access to those things for the time they're waiting at the airport. Uh, my husband, Larry, has uh, multiple friends and colleagues who are trying to get to the airport or are at the airport. It's chaos. Things are going downhill fast, so we're urging our friends, if they do want to leave and they are able, to try to make their way to the airport right now. So that's the reality. So how is all this communication happening? It's happening on WhatsApp uh, because it's end-to-end -end encrypted, and we have no idea if the Taliban is going to be of new or of old. And so we're just assuming that it's Taliban of old and we're asking our friends not to communicate on Facebook or text message or anything that's less secure. So a lot of the communication is happening on WhatsApp. Some of it's happening on email or just calling each other. So I think that's a, a safe assumption, first off, and I think we do know. Yeah. I mean, the, the Taliban is not the Swiss army now, all of a sudden. One, one trip to Doha didn't solve, didn't solve anything. It's true. That's what I believe. So what's the vibe? I mean, we hear so much stuff about Taliban checkpoints. We hear about Taliban checking, checking phones. Is there English on your phone? If so, you know, go over here. If not, I guess go on your way. Yeah, it's a little bit chaotic. Taliban isn't just one tribe and there isn't centralized communication. There isn't one message. There could be some people from one sect in the Taliban who are not getting the Doha message or aren't listening to the centralized communication of their media officer. People in Kabul are getting hit with batons and whipped with whips to go away from the checkpoints. People's phones are getting confiscated. Also, I have Hazara friends who have been kidnapped, interrogated, and dropped back off in their neighborhoods. Then I have other friends who went to the airport and didn't have proper documents and got through. So there's no centralized communication within the Taliban. Some are doing the things that they said they would do. Most are not. 
how about we just start start here the the Taliban it's kind of like one word in, in America it's got to get distilled down to one word and and we've talked to some of our some of our guys who have served there you know fighting the war against the Taliban and they're like look some of these folks in in the city that have they've been to Doha and they kind of like being in front of the media camera and maybe they don't want to get a they don't want to get assassinated just yet anyway they're more likely to behave in a certain way you've got savages out in the countryside it's not like there's a president that's that's kind of setting a clear agenda and everybody's on the same page so from you know your your time in 2010 2012 the the friendships you've made i'm sure there were lots of conversations reminiscing about the taliban which you've written about and and what you're seeing hearing now i mean when when we say taliban how do you break that down to american ears yeah, I'll tell you what I know. I'm not an expert, but I did live there and I do have that firsthand experience. Um, you know, the word Taliban comes from Arabic. Uh, Afghans only understand Arabic because of the Quran. Their language is not Arabic. They speak Dari, which is Farsi, a dialect of Farsi. So starting with the word Taliban, Talib means student. So they're students of the Quran in name. I don't believe in practice at all. Taliban is a group of many different tribes, uh, predominantly Pashtun, but then Pashtuns have a lot of different tribes too. Modern borders don't, don't define the Taliban. The Pashtun tribe spreads across Afghanistan and Pakistan and into a lot of other areas as well, but it's made predominantly from Pashtus and they, they're in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And then there's multiple tribes that make up that. Uh, the Taliban was in, was, a movement created in response to the Mujahideen era and the corruption that stemmed from the war with Russia. They wanted to stamp out that corruption and make it a pure um, Muslim country. And that was the premise of their ideas. However, Taliban does not live by the Quran as Muslims do. Taliban makes their monies through human trafficking, drug trafficking, smuggling, embezzlement, extortion, kidnapping. And these are not Muslim values. So who are the Taliban? There are multiple groups and tribes that make up this group that are extremists. That any, is there any part of their ideology that could be considered redemptive or good that you know of? Yeah, there's so many different factions in the Taliban. I'm sure that there are people who do believe that this version of Sharia law is pure and good and right. And I, I just haven't seen it. I don't know any Taliban personally because up until Saturday, they were the enemy and we tried to avoid them because uh, they want to kidnap and kill us and torture us. Um, us being either foreign assistance forces or humanitarian aid workers or Afghans, depending on who they were. So no, I don't believe that the Taliban's version of Islam is pure and good and kind, and maybe it started that way, but they definitely haven't demonstrated it in the last 20 years that that I've known the country and the people. Jolly, you have a unique perspective, different from some of the other conversations that Jason has been having with, with veterans, I believe. Mm -hmm. You were embedded as an educator in connecting with a lot of the women and other men too, in that field too, but I, I from reading the articles you've written and hearing your stories, it seems like you, you've you got this unique perspective of, of hearing the women, how the women have viewed the Taliban over the years. And I think it's really interesting to talk about like what Afghanistan was, you know, the miniskirt era yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, how it changed and then how, when you were there, what, what it was like, a little bit of reopening, not exactly going back to wearing many skirts by any stretch of the imagination, but it, it was changing. And now we're looking at sort of another dark period. So can you tell us a little bit more about how those stories were, were conveyed to you? I mean, I'm sure you've got some interesting anecdotes. Yeah, um, I'll just go back and, and explain how I was there in what capacity, and then we can go into kind of the evolution of of fashion, which uh, is endemic of how the population is treated and the freedom that they have. I was there as an English language fellow and specialist with the U.S. Department of State. It's basically an education program where they send professors into countries and they train teachers and work in the local schools. 
But then, you know, when you're in a country as an educator, ancillary projects kind of pop up and you take on whatever the people want. So it's basically like Peace Corps. We assist the locals in the things that they want us to do, educate, but also learn. So I'm there to uh, represent American culture and teach people about that in English. And then I'm there to learn about Afghan culture and then come home and teach people about Afghan culture as well. It's public diplomacy. So it's a branch of public diplomacy in the State Department. That's how I was there. There were only a handful of fellows that ever went into Afghanistan. Uh, My partner Tara and I were the first fellows to be there. They tried one before us, but he didn't have freedom of movement. He was part of the embassy motor pool and they realized that didn't happen. He couldn't get to school. He wasn't important. (laughs) Um, So Tara and I, our project was that mission I told you, but somehow our regional English language officer got us housing outside of the Green Line and the Asia Foundation, which is a humanitarian organization there, sponsored us and gave us drivers. So we were kind of just free in the city to do as we pleased. That's amazing, by the way. That is a real boon. You know, I want to, I want you to talk more about like your freedom of movement and what that meant. Yeah. You know, not being, not being restricted to like the embassy walls. Yeah. Nobody could believe it. I think Tara and I were the only American women in Kabul at the time that had freedom of movement. And we were, we were just as surprised as everyone else. So To say that we had freedom of movement doesn't mean that we could just walk around the city whenever we felt like it. We we couldn't leave our homes without um, Afghan men or a group of females walking with us. And this is just because of the um, structure of society in Afghanistan. Women just don't walk alone. It's not seen as kind of kosher. But yeah, we had a driver from the Asia Foundation and he took us to school every day. To put it into context, we drove to school a different way every day because there was always the threat of Taliban kidnap and extortion. And our government doesn't negotiate with terrorists is the official line. So Tara and I had to avoid getting captured by terrorists, (laughs) took a different way to school every day, worked at multiple schools, but our base was I worked at Kabul Education University and Tara worked at Kabul University, which is kind of the Harvard of Afghanistan. So we had the freedom of movement. We um, went to the market with our friends, shopped in the market, which Americans would call the farmer's market. But you can imagine that it was a little different than the farmer's market. There's a butcher section. They're cutting sheep's heads off on a wooden stump. And then the other are waiting to be slaughtered, looking at that sheep. It was awesome. Yeah, I bet. You know, we mentioned the policy about not, you know, negotiating with terrorists. And, and you know, I, as a general rule, if you're going to be operating or working in a place like, like this, you, you have to have this sort of, um, you know, responsibility for yourself. Yeah. You know, the cavalry isn't always going to come. And, and yeah. if they do, it might be too late. So this is the kind of work that I was drawn to as well, as you know. And, you know, the fact that you were able to to even get out and go to these places like the market, even if it was a, the group of females, is it's really something that, that you were beyond the green line, I think. Yeah. And I mean, Fridays are the day of rest there. So I do one of two things. If I really needed rest, I'd go to Camp Eggers and I'd do CrossFit. And uh, I'd hang out in our American zone and wear my booty shorts and sports bra. <laughs> the chagrin of all of the freedom and, <laughs> and whoever else they're like, this is not in the uniform code. I'm like, don't worry, I'm a civilian. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the other thing that I would do would go to Bobber Gardens, which is like the Central Park or Kabul Zoo or walk around the market with my Afghan friends. And those are the things that you did on Fridays. So I had multiple families adopt me so that I could do those things. But 2010 to 2012 was kind of this time. It wasn't safe. You know, there's suicide bombings in the markets quite frequently and in the streets. But it was generally safe for you to do regular things that Afghans do. You avoided the markets on Fridays because things kind of happen in a certain sphere. And if you're aware of that, then you just don't go there. We wouldn't go inside of the Green Line. If I were going to Camp Eggers, that was usually my most nervous moment because I had a driver from the Asia Foundation who couldn't enter the Green Zone. 
So I would get dropped off at a bank outside of the green zone and walk in by myself. But since I live outside of it, I look like an Afghan. So it'd be a little bit dangerous for me walking through there. And sometimes I didn't know if I should speak Dari, Farsi, the language of Afghans or English when I was walking through, because if I spoke Dari in the green zone, then someone might think I'm an Afghan with uh, nefarious intentions. If I spoke English in the green zone, then maybe someone else would hear me. And when I walked out, I would be targeted. So you always have to make a lot of decisions when you're in Kabul in the moment to try to protect yourself and those around you. Yeah, that's kind of what it's like looking like me too. So outside of the green zone, I wore chadar, which is head cover and covered my entire body. I can tell you how I met Larry because that brings up how I met my husband. Yeah, I was going to ask you to tell that story. <laughs> so speaking of looking like an Afghan, <laughs> always when you're a civilian, you need an escort to get onto the bases. And I wanted to do CrossFit on the base because I didn't have an Olympic lifting area or free weights. And at the time, as an aside, I was trying to make the CrossFit Games from Asia. And so I needed to train with weights, which weren't in my basement. So I started to work out on Fridays at Camp Eggers. My escort at the time was gone. She was on a different deployment. And so my husband, Larry, had been a Department of Defense contractor. He's former Special Forces 10th Group. 10th Group. Um, yeah, <laughs> the originals. Yes. <laughs> um, so she asked Larry to escort me on the base. Well, he's waiting at the gate and I come strolling up in my chadar with my face and my body covered and I'm looking around and I was like, Larry? <laughs> and he looks at me like, you guys know Larry, but I'll paint a picture for our audience. He's like a very aware, kind of quiet, former SF guy. So he's like, why is this Afghan lady looking at me? And how does she know my name? So he kind of looked like he wanted to maybe not kill me, but I was a threat. <laughs> and I took my scarf off and I was like, oh, I'm Jala. I'm the person who's coming to lift weights with you. And he's still like looking a little suspicious. He's like, um, okay. I'm like, I'll show you my passport. So I was like, here's my passport. He's like, okay, follow me. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So Larry escorted me onto the base. We lifted weights and nothing much happened. You know, we're at Camp Beggars lifting weights together. But I ended up talking to Larry online for about four years after that because I started to get into endurance events and I thought he had he had the intel and could help me. We did end up getting together four years later and it was just our fourth wedding anniversary, but we've been together for six years since. So we oh, met in Kabul and he thought I was an Afghan lady. That's hilarious. <laughs> How many people can say that? <laughs> yeah. So what kind of friendships have, have, have you maintained through you and Larry? And I mean, what kind of conversations would you have with them? How is that yeah. endured? You know I mean? Cause there's always, it's, it's hard to speak to foreigners, even when you're there, even when you, it's harder than it is. You don't have this, this commonality so much. Mm -hmm. So you have to build those bridges. And you, yeah. I know Larry's been back and forth to there a, a lot since. I mean, it, it's, it's one thing to say, you know, Kabul means a lot to me, but how, how? Yeah. I mean, going in there as an educator, the friends that I made there are educators now, most of them. So Three of the men who I taught at Kabul Education University got Fulbright scholarships to the United States. One studied for his master's degrees in India. Two of my closest female friends, the one whose voice message that you read, got their master's degree in either India or another country. Someone got their master's degree in England. So in general, education means a lot to Afghans and they really value education both for men and women. In the post-Taliban era, in 2001, the literacy rate in Afghanistan was 17%. Today, it's much higher than 70%. I heard an acquaintance, Ambassador Ryan Crocker, he was the ambassador to Afghanistan from the United States when I was there. He was getting interviewed a little while ago, and I wrote extensively about this, but he said something that resonated with me. He's like, 70% or more of the population is educated now, and a large majority of them are women. He's like, Taliban can't do the same things that they did before. They can't kill the whole country. Everyone's educated now. And that 
is a weapon that we gave and the Afghans gave to themselves that no one can take away. This idea that an educated populace can't be manipulated is strong. Education is something that they have no matter where they go. So the commonality with my friends and I is that value of education and to teach others how to make decisions on their own and that there are so many possibilities within their own society and outside. All of my Afghan friends wanted to stay in Afghanistan or return to Afghanistan so that they could be part of the nation building effort that's happened over the last two decades. They're committed to making Afghanistan stronger. Right now there's an eminent threat to the things that they've done and their ideology. They don't wanna leave most Afghans who have been there and are educated, want to remain in their country, but they also don't want to be persecuted by Taliban because we don't know what's going to happen. That that speaks really highly of the type of people they are. There's always the risk you run of a brain drain when people get educated and, and find that, you know, there's not opportunities here. We, we need to go elsewhere. And you can't, on one hand, blame people for, for wanting to improve the lives of their families and, and themselves um, by leaving. But it's it really speaks volumes that these friends of yours all either stayed or returned after mm-hmm. getting their master's degrees and other degrees and, and wanted to go back and, and make their country better. And that, that was important to them. And what's been going on lately feels nothing but like a setback in, mm-hmm. in many ways. But I, I think it's a glimmer of hope to mention what the ambassador said and, and to talk about education as something that that can't be taken away. It can, it can be threatened, like you yeah. said, and, and it can be made very difficult, but the seeds of these ideas have been planted already for, you know, the last two decades or so. Yeah. And there's, I want to keep on talking about the commonalities because Jason's right. When, when foreigners meet each other, there's this struggle for common ground sometimes, but going into it, Tara, my partner and I, um, partner, I mean, partner teacher with the fellows program, We both were speaking Dari, taking Dari lessons, listening to singers who were Afghan. There's there's a couple of Afghan singers who have like lasted through all generations. And even today, Ahmed Zaire and Farhad Daria, they're kind of like the crooners of Afghanistan. And uh, we started connecting through culture and music. And you would think like, oh, Afghans aren't really interested in American culture. Maybe there's like some other things that they're listening to. But no, I had to do lessons on like Madonna and John Denver and <laughs> Jennifer Lopez. And I'm like, really? So great. <laughs> I don't even know who John Denver is. Well, I didn't, but I do now, obviously. M- music has this amazing way of connecting cultures across yeah, the world. Exactly. Um, All of my university students spoke English, but I'd go into the villages to work with the women, as you had mentioned, or I'd go into the elementary schools. And the women knew the song lyrics to songs that were popular at the time in English, but couldn't speak English, you know? So music connected us too, and poetry and literature, depending on who you're talking to. So I've got something, and I don't really know exactly how to ask it. It's kind of like there's been so much oppression. I mean, let, let's go back to where we are right this second. I mean, mm-hmm. it's 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 nice that people don't want to leave in essence, but the airport is not exactly, it's not like, hey, you can leave if you want to, right? So time will tell. I mean, Taliban has US-made weapons with US-made optics, with US-made Humvees and US-made ballistics and and bombs and, and you name it, right? And, and comms equipment, yeah. right? I mean, they are well-positioned to lie in wait and like, we'll see what happens once the last plane leaves. My, my question is, you spent a lot of, of time with the women in Afghanistan, specifically the women in Kabul. There's been so much oppression. Like, what's going to be the ability to rise up mentally, physically, you know, a- across the board? Like, what, what's your hope, expectation, dream for, for, for how this plays out? Yeah, the history is, is written on the wall women right now are hiding in their basements. They're hiding. And even the friend that you read the voice message from, she's covering herself completely in her backyard today when coalition forces are still helping with evacuation. So before it's even gotten bad, women are hiding and covering 
nobody is going to work. The Taliban said, okay, next Saturday you can go back to work because Friday is the day of rest in Muslim countries. Saturday is Monday. Next Saturday, go to work. Um, tomorrow, no one's going to work. The women are afraid to be beaten, persecuted, kidnapped, raped. Yes, the Taliban rapes people and beats them. That is not a value of Islam. But women are terrified. They aren't going out. They don't expect it to get better. And you asked about the ability to rise up and defend. They don't have the ability, as you stated before, they've inherited all of the things that we've left behind these hard assets. It's not looking great. I listened to an interview from a female member of parliament who her entire family is in Iran now, and they're saying, come and join us. But she says, no, I want to stay and represent women in the Afghan government. Taliban saying that women can be in the government. In fact, uh, we have more we, like I'm an Afghan. Afghanistan has more women in parliament than uh, percentage-wise than Americans do women in the House of Representatives. So that's about to change. Yeah, exactly. I I fear that representation is going to go away. There's some female members of parliament who are staying there and saying that they'll represent women. There's a possibility that might happen, but I feel like the possibility is less than 0.001%. So no, they're not going to have the capability to defend themselves, to protest. People have been killed at protests in Jalalabad, in Herat, in these cities that are, Herat is quite a progressive city and female professors and students were turned around at the gates of the university yesterday morning, Monday morning, uh, Taliban tells them to go home and cover up. They said that women could go to school. None of the girls are going to school right now. The schools are shut down. Everyone's afraid of violence and retribution. So right. it's pretty stark. Yeah. Yeah. Even if there there's lip service done to oh yeah, you can still do these things, the, the trust is not there, you know, and, and that's the, the reality on the ground. And then it's just going to be, that's going to become the new norm to be like, well, I guess they don't want to come. We, we told them they could, but, <laughs> but there's an intimidation factor that's underlying all this. Yeah. Okay. Let me, let me reframe this just a little bit then. So let's say, God, this is like a nightmare. Let's say that there was a foreign, a foreign entity in America that was setting up checkpoints and they were anti-American and try that around here. The people will rise up. Like we have guns, we have weaponry in our homes and this is not some call to, to action. Like this is a total hypothetical, right? Mm -hmm. Like the, those checkpoints would be under assault from, from private citizens who would, yeah. who would go after that. You know, when they start setting up sex trafficking and harems and, you know, rape depots, you, you have like the, the only language that's going to work is violence. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that's my belief. I don't think that there's a way that you're going to reason with the Taliban. They, Doha did not get them to change their stripes. These are people that are by all accounts of everyone I've ever talked to who served against them. Violence is, is about it. I mean, that's my belief. I don't know if that's your belief, but does the population have the stomach or the will to, to take this on. There are protests happening. I, I mean, I don't know how long they'll be able to last, but. Jason made a good point. Violence is the way in many situations, but I wanna look at the past two decades too and kind of the systems that have been built through education and work of NGOs and humanitarian efforts to kind of build within these systems of support that aren't the military or the, the violent route, which works, as we know. But like Ambassador Crocker said, we gave and they received and gave it themselves the gift of this education and knowledge that there is another way. And um, yeah, it's it's hard to fight with your brain, but people people do and they know and they have these systems. And I'm not saying like it's the Underground Railroad, but it's very similar to our Underground Railroad during slave times. Afghans have connections outside of the country and in the country to help each other and to maybe um, rise up in a more secretive fashion against Taliban than they have before. And there are also Afghan organizations within the country that are helping women do these things and avoid these things. 
I think that there is a stronger um, civil society, a system of civil society these days than there was in 1994. And the world's different technology-wise. We can hear and see all of the things that are happening a lot easier than we could 20 years ago, 25 years ago when Taliban first took the country. So yes, violence is an option, but then there's this civil society factor um, an educated populace can't be manipulated as easy as an uneducated populace. There's so many more people that know reality and know how to connect with others and get out of it. Most of them do live in the big cities, Kabul, Herat, Mazari Sharif, and then the villagers might not have these civil um, systems that they can access. And government, though the government looks like it's dissolved, there's many members of parliament including Hamid Karzai and other actors who have been there for a very long time that are staying to try to help in these other ways. And the female component, there's a majority of female members of parliament that weren't there before that are staying. So yes, violence is very effective and it could be the only way eventually, but civil society has been built up so much over the last two decades that it's harder to manipulate and control this educated populace. And I'm pretty idealistic. I think Emily and I are very similar in that regard. So it is a wait and see, but I think that there are so many more avenues for Afghans to defend themselves and to resist. You wouldn't have seen protests in Jalalabad. Uh, let's talk about Jalalabad. It borders on Pakistan, and this is where a lot of Taliban have crossed into Afghanistan in the last 20 years. Jalalabad, when my Afghan friends from Kabul visited Jalalabad, they'd grow their beard and wear Peyron Tambon, the traditional Afghan clothes, to fit in so they looked more like Taliban. So if people are protesting in Jalalabad and trying to put up the Afghan flag, we have a little hope. There's protests even in Kandahar and Herat. So there's protests right now. There was a protest yeah, here in Jacksonville out. Beach. I know. Florida. You sent me I was video. shocked. Great. But, you know, it's just a... I, I wish those protests could send bullets through the hearts of every Taliban on these checkpoints right yeah. now. Yeah. And who knows? But civil society is different than it was 20... Is it 27 years ago when they took the country? It's different. And it's my hope that it goes a different way. Like, does everybody have an AK in their in their home? <laughs> <laughs> no, they don't, but they a lot of people do have access to AKs. <laughs> All right, this isn't this isn't Iraq or Texas. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm laughing because there is like control of weapons there and people are like, how do all Americans have guns? I'm like, that's another conversation. But yeah, mm-hmm. Afghans don't. And uh it's scary for them right now. But Jala, what do you know from your your contacts about there there's been some speculation that this was all sort of planned. Ghani knew this months in advance. This was just basically a, a deal, a brokered on the top levels to just make it easy or something like that. I don't I don't know if that's what sort of stories you're hearing about that or if, if they are even able to share that. But, you know, it just happens without a shot fired, you know, so to speak. It's, it's like everyone's wondering why all these forces that were, you know, so well-trained and so much money put into and so much effort that they just collapsed. I'm, I'm thinking anyone who knows a little bit about Afghanistan can see that there was something else. And it's going to be really interesting to read the history books about this past week and month because people on the ground know that the Afghan National Police and the Afghan National Army and others who work for the government or military receive salaries intermittently. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happening for when I was there, my my professor friends, they get government salaries, weren't getting paid every month. You know, the corruption is wide and deep mm-hmm. in the Afghan government and the best thing I could say is that it sucks and it's been happening for two decades. And the reason why Taliban was trusted when they took over the country the first time was because that was one of their taglines. Forget about the drug trafficking and everything else that was happening. They said, oh, we're going to stamp out corruption. And the Afghans were like, yes, do that. So the government has been corrupt for a long time. And we know that corruption probably has something to do with it these days, too. Yeah. Um, So that's my answer to you. Yes, I believe that there's a lot more going on behind the scenes because 
Afghans are fierce fighters. They've never lost a war on their own soil is what every Afghan soldier would tell you. And to see the forces dissolve to a degree was very hard to hard to hear and hard to see. So there's a lot of sort of talk about did we go into Afghanistan really knowing the enemy, knowing the culture, knowing the people. I believe that you you actually did. You're 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 someone who was predisposed and also dedicated to, you know, learning and and being open-minded about these sort of things. Do you have any thoughts on if as a whole, and I'm talking, I'm not talking about your, your soldiers, you know, who are just doing their duty and serving at the, the needs of, of our country and as they're directed, but I'm talking about the, the policymakers, the educator, the educated, you know, the people that have all access to all types of intel, every resource at their fingertips and the decisions that they made. Do you think they cared enough or did they know, did they really want to know what was going on in Afghanistan? Yeah, I can talk from personal experience and from my position as an educator, and it's a very easy lift for me, not for others who are following orders. I think it's it's existentially a different argument that goes in the mind, goes on in the mind, but it's an easy lift for me because my mission through public diplomacy and through the State Department was to build relationships and to educate and assist and that's an easy, easy thing to do when you're committed long-term to it. So two years in a place, I wasn't even teaching at first. My department head at my university wanted me to observe and learn Farsi and make friends and learn Hazaragi. Um, we have a huge minority population of Hazaras at our university. Go into the neighborhoods, eat the food, go to weddings. It takes a long time to build relationships and the mission of public diplomacy in Afghanistan at the time when I went there, uh, a decade after coalition forces came into Afghanistan, was easy for me and for the other professors and teachers that I was with. And it was clear to me. Wasn't the quote that you heard, patience is bitter, but it has a sweet fruit? Yeah. That's it in Dari. And yeah, patience is bitter, but it has a sweet fruit. That's another thing that's really cool about Afghans. They always speak in these proverbs. <laughs> yeah. It, it, but th- it's funny, Jala, like you, we think of two years in a place like that as a long, that, that's a, that's an investment of your time. Like that's a long time, but that's not it's a long not- time for different cultures. <laughs> Ten years, they think you know, that's a blip. And it's true. It's like, you know, the, the quote that um, Ben Bunn put in his, it's like an, an Afghan told him, you, you have the watches, but we have the time. Yeah. And, you know, for a culture that's you know, been or, been around for a very long time and is okay with things moving slowly yeah, and has um, a high threshold for suffering, that's the kind of level of understanding of culture that I think I, I wish sometimes our military leaders at least um, acted upon more, more often. Yeah, it's hindsight's twenty twenty, right? But uh, we've seen I this think- repeat over history, though. <laughs> What was the intent though, right? I mean, yeah. th- it hasn't been clear for a really long time. I mean, we're, we, we, we suck at nation building. The military was built to yeah. defeat Hitler and then it kind <laughs> of adapted to Vietnam, but we lost the things that worked in Vietnam with special forces in MACV SOG working with the mountain yeah. yards. The things that worked in Afghanistan were special forces working with the Northern Alliance. And, 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 and people like Jala, <laughs> the edge the, the, the public dis- diplomacy programs, they work. I- Absolutely. They without, without the, the defense though, without the ability to let people move around and, sure. and be safe. I mean, you've got Taliban at checkpoints. You, in, ha- you have right to now. have the hard and soft power work together. You know, yeah, it's not exactly. one without the other. And this is what I tell people about um, special forces. I say that y'all are the Peace Corps of the special operations community. You learn the languages and know the people and go in and integrate. Um, and this is with force. So you're coupling the two things that I believe you need to help the society move forward. You probably need force, but you also need that education piece and that awareness piece of who the people are and what they're going through. And special forces does that. But um, yeah, the public diplomacy piece, that soft power, Ambassador Crocker mentioned that as well. He said, uh, when we do nation building, we need both soft and hard power 
we hope that we don't need hard power in conflict resolution and negotiation. Everything ends at the negotiation table. So look, the Taliban are like the Kraken, right? Like you can, yeah. you can hope and you can wish and you can, you can say, Oh man, I hope the Kraken's a, a beautiful butterfly. Right. <laughs> and I hope, I hope that that version of the Kraken shows up today and it's uh-huh. just, it's fallacy and it's never ever going to change. It's like, who's the, who's the dude that shook hands with Hitler and sort of said, oh, you know, everything's going to be all right. The Munich Pact of 1938 yeah. or whatever, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's it's insanity. I mean, it's like, imagine if Hitler were still alive and someone wanted to go broker a deal with Hitler. It's ludicrous. And that, I mean, back then we did have diplomats still trying to broker deals with Hitler. Yep. I mean, we did. No, they did they in did. Munich. And, and yeah. it was, and it went, it went exactly you what know what it did? It bought Hitler time to build yes. fucking concentration camps yeah. and, and to do his absolute worst. And that's exactly what's happening right now. The Taliban, if they're smart, because I got to put the enemy's hat on for a second. If they're smart, what they're going to do is they're going to allow this kind of peaceful transfer they're going to say, hey, you know, we, we deal in millennia, not in, in months. And they're going to get all the, all the people out. And then they're going to slowly start assassinating anybody with two brain cells that, that's, that's done anything in the education field. Or, you know, this is always what happens. You know, Hitler's burning the books. He's taking the artists and, 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 and the critics. It happened of, in, in Iraq. Mass graves, you know, when you come back. Yeah, it's happening now, you guys. I mean... The assassinations, the targeted assassinations, there aren't official reports, but like I was mentioning, my Hazara uh, ethnic minority friends in Dashtibarchi is the Hazara neighborhood in Kabul. There's already kidnappings, interrogations, and their bodies, not dead. Some are just beaten to almost dead, getting dropped off in Dashtibarchi. That's this week. Yeah. So it's already happening to Hazaras. Hazaras are the Shia minority and Pashto are Sunni. Um, it's already happening. The women are already getting turned away at the universities. Our friends are dodging bullets at the airport. Like they say, they're not shooting. Like really top level for, for those out listening is, you know, the Sunnis and the Shia are just sworn enemies. Like Iran-Iraq war was all based on this. You know, we, we shifted up that power in, in that part of the world. And now the Shia are in power in, in Iraq because they're the, you know, they're the majority. And now they're more closely aligned with Iran. And it's it's just a mess, and, and, right? And Jala, the Hazara have always been persecuted over the years yes, in Afghanistan. Thousands, thousands of years. And just to distill it down for people who don't know the difference between Shia and Sunni. It's basically just religious authority and who leads the the faction of Islam. So the Shia are those who basically followed the Prophet's cousin and son-in-law, Ali, and the Sunni decided after the Prophet Muhammad died that they'd follow his closest companion, Abu Bakr. So for Westerners or non-Muslims, that's a Sunni and Shia. It's just a, a question of succession. And then over time, these things have become crazier. But yeah. I do want to hear about sort of the changes and, you know, before Taliban and stuff like that, because I think the history is mm-hmm. is fascinating. It's like if you look back at Afghanistan in the 70s and the 80s, it, it's very cosmopolitan. It almost feels yeah. European, you know, and, and it's like it amazing to to think how it went back into the dark ages, you know, when the Taliban took over. Yep. And then I think you were actually there in a really special time, Jala. Like, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm listen, I'm no expert on Afghanistan, but I, I know enough of the timeline to know that there was this window. You were able as a Western woman to, to, have freedom of movement. You know, there was, there were restrictions, but I mean, let's be honest. I think you would have more or less needed to have those in a lot of places in in that area of the world. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing to me that this is recent history, folks. Like this is like our lifetime. This is not like we're talking about the 1700s. Like this is 1980 and then it's like the the curtain, you know, it just falls and then here we are again in the same position of about to see something like this happen again and 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 just we're hoping, like you said, that these underground networks and these like connections that have been made and that these smart resilient people mm-hmm. who love their country 
have created, I like to think that they haven't been like, you know, just live in large, <laughs> that they've yeah. actually been, that, this, that they have actually been preparing for this time. Yeah. That's, I mean, tell, tell me, tell me that that's true. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I can't speak to if it's true or not, but I can tell you about what you said. Kind of the woman's fashion over the last 40 years indicates the era that they were in, right? Um, some of my friends' mothers have pictures of themselves in mini skirts and crop tops in the 70s in Kabul until Ayatollah Khomeini came in in the late 70s, 79, 80 happened. And uh, Islamic law was blanketed kind of from Iran across Afghanistan, the covering came into play through Taliban when women were just completely sequestered. And then for the last 20 years, the growing liberalness of fashion, I would wear a mini skirt to teach, but I'm wearing black pants and a long black shirt under my mini skirt. So the fashion kind of came back to this um, Islamic country. And and I, I wrote about it in one of my articles I shared with you guys, and maybe we can link it. So in um, Pashto, Bohantun is university, but they would call it the fashion tune. <laughs> they would call it like the place of fashion for the university students. They were a uh, uniform all through 12th grade. And then at the university, which is where most of the love marriages happen, they're wearing all the fashion that they want to wear in a conservative manner. Women are still wearing chadars and long uh, black sleeves and black pants, but under these mini skirts and crop tops and it's just, uh, it was a really beautiful time and I really enjoyed it. And my Afghan students look at it and they say, oh, those are the golden years. Like we're old elderly people now, but yeah, you're right. I was there in a time of growth and openness in the society. Okay. So let's talk about the seasonality of Afghanistan. So mm -hmm. there, there's fighting season and then there's, there's really harsh winters. Mm -hmm. And to go back to enemy mindset, maybe you play nice until you, you, ha you have a winner, which is inherently a little bit less activity. Stop me when I'm wrong. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's going to open up for more fighting and more oppression and more killing and more raping and more, more all of these things that, you know, are going to fade from the American consciousness because we're just, yeah. it's just going to be just like, just it happened in Somalia. You know, you just expect it. That, that's the fear, Right. And so what do you expect in terms of what's a winner like from your perspective when you were living there in, in Kabul? Yeah, this is true. Even in the last 20 years, there's definitely a fighting season and a, a resting season, like a, a forced kind of time when people don't fight. And Afghans were ready for it every May. And then they were ready for the rest time in the winters. And the reason is because... We have some of the most harsh mountains in the world in Afghanistan, the Hindu Kush, and you simply just can't drive anything past your village on a road. The roads don't exist. The mountains are crazy. It's cold. There just isn't like an infrastructure. <laughs> like you need an infrastructure to fight, but there is no infrastructure you do. to fight in the winter in Afghanistan. And so I feel like you're right. This is happening at this time because this is a good time for fighting and it's probably going to get a lot worse before there's a break in the fighting. And there might not be because there is an infrastructure for fighting in the cities. And now the Taliban are in the cities. And so maybe it won't stop in the winter this time. But yes, there's a rhythm to the fighting season in Afghanistan. And I thought it was absurd and ludicrous that the weather kind of dictates when people fight. But when you do live in the harsh mountain areas, you can't move when the winter comes. And so this is an opportunity for Taliban right now to further their mission. And it's a scary time because it's also fighting season. Jala, I have something to confess that's, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, on my preparing for talking with you and seeing the news and reading about everything, it's kind of takes you back, you know, so sometimes, you know, war, war torn places and on my way over here, I saw this truck pull out in front of me, like a little ways ahead. And I, my first thought was like, oh my gosh, there's two guys in the back with a gun, like a gun, you know, and it was like two golf bags. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, dear Lord, like we are so lucky. <laughs> we are so lucky to live in a place that we have our problems, but our problems are not that it just doesn't backslide into there's guys with gun trucks now setting up checkpoints and telling you when and where to go. I've, I've lived in a lot of countries that have that. And I've, I've fortunately have never seen that in ours. And it's, it's upsetting to think about what actually it means to have freedoms taken away, 
you know? Yeah, I don't like to get into equivalency because everyone's problems are their own and they're important. Right. Them, you know, but it's true. When uh, my partner teacher Tara and I went to Afghanistan, I already had all this history in Palestine and Israel and uh, China and Micronesia where there's not checkpoints. But yes, in China and Palestine and Israel, in police states or places that had a more tumultuous recent history. And I was used to people walking around with weapons and checking you and being invasive and intrusive and, and being in police states. And so when I got to Afghanistan and there were checkpoints everywhere, not Taliban ones when I was there, obviously, but police checkpoints all over the city, metal detectors going into your university. It's a police state. Tara was like, this is crazy. Aren't you afraid? Mm -hmm. No, not really. I mean, this is kind of par for much of the developing world that there are. Mm -hmm. This is called progress, Tara. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <I> <laughs> we like, like these checkpoints. Really <laughs> checkpoint. So yeah, like there, there are so many places in the world to Jason's point, like this could not happen in America because we are the people we are. I had another post after the one that you read where that person's house got taken over by Taliban. Can you imagine your house in Jacksonville Beach and you come home and there's like someone else in your house? A, it wouldn't happen. Like this is Nazi Germany in right. Afghanistan well, right now. Happened Taliban in the Civil War here, but that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. So they took her house and her neighbor's house and all their artillery is in the backyard I'm like, that would not like Americans. Can you imagine like someone coming? This is my master bedroom, like someone coming into my house and taking it. No, that would not happen here. So I want people to think about what's happening. It's 2021 and people's houses are getting taken, not by force yet, because this is the nice Taliban this week. It's going to be by force soon. Nobody was in the house that they took. Let's be honest. It's they're, they're being forced to. It's just not called that. Yeah. You know. I mean, what, what can you say? Hey, I've got my artillery here. Um, would you mind? Yeah. Possibly. Could I possibly, <laughs> you know, ring a ding ding, maybe set it up in your backyard? Hey, you know what would be nice? Maybe some tea, right? Yeah. You know, exactly. some, oh, you've got some food. Excellent. It's mine now. Another point that I wanted to make about that is that um, at first I said Taliban is made up of Pashtuns. Well, a majority of Afghans are Pashtun. They don't care if you're in the same tribe as them, if you are, if you're not Taliban. So let's just talk about that. The friend's house who got taken is Pashtu. So no, not all Pashtuns are Taliban and they don't give a crap if you are from the same tribe. If you're not Taliban, then then you're not. This might be a dumb question, but what sort of identifies someone as Taliban? Like, how do you know? <laughs> Look at what they're wearing. I mean, I'm I'm kind of smirking or scoffing. Like they're wearing Peyron Tambon, which is the long shirt over um, baggy pants. Black. And they could be wearing black. Most of the time it used to be black turbans. They've changed their fashion a little bit. They might be wearing a jacket over their Peyron Tambon. They're wearing scuffy tennis shoes. Basically it's not a uniform and it's not modern fashion. And they, the men have a very long beard. You will never see women. Women are not part of Taliban. They don't fight with them. They don't move with them. They have wives or multiple wives. Women who are owned or married into Taliban will only be wearing burqa, which is the blue sheet covering that you see some women in Afghanistan wearing, which before last week was probably only about 10% of the population in the villages. Mm. Um, yes, so Taliban, you can instantly identify them by what they're wearing. Mm -hmm. My friend whose message that you read likes to say, like, they just don't look like the rest of us Afghans. They just don't. So it seems, I mean, they are, they seem foreign, you know, it seems like a foreign entity that like that took over, you know, yep. it doesn't seem to have much tied to their history from what I, when I understand. They do and they don't. So it's, Afghans in the city were Peron Tambon on Friday. It's mm. their it's their like leisurely clothes. So, but if you are there and you you do understand the culture, they definitely look different than um, everyday Afghans. But Afghans know when they see them too. It's just it's just how it is. There's different hats in Afghanistan, and they wear a turban, whereas other Afghans don't. There's a circular hat, and um, right now I'm losing my Farsi. But uh, if they're wearing a circular hat, usually they're Pashtun. 
not Taliban. So I can go on about hats. But what about the one that Karzai used to always wear? Yeah, Hamid Karzai wears that. That's a Mazari Sharif kind of fashion. Mm -hmm. Um, Also not Taliban. So Taliban generally wear turbans. And if somebody is listing and I get this wrong, then I apologize. But there's a lot of different hats and uh, black turban is uh, uh, decidedly Taliban. Not a black turban could be anyone. It's just another hat. All right. So kind of coming, coming full circle, you know, we started out and we read your friend's quote about there is no hope. It's, it's, I'm certain very easy to feel that way. Um, like, what are you hopeful for? What kind of message of hope would you, would you want to pass on? And like, how, how do, how do we process this? Yeah. I mean, when the Taliban enters your city and you see them walking in the streets, and you have been working for most of your life, that friend who you read the message from is in her 30s. So most of her life, she has been working to rebuild her society that um, she couldn't go to elementary school because she was in elementary school during Taliban. When you see that those people enter your city with guns and no one's defending you at that moment, there was no hope for her. And that's, that's how she felt. My message to my Afghan friends, her included, is that Afghans who are in other countries and foreigners are not forgetting about you. There are numerous organizations, governments all over the world who are trying to expedite evacuation and are not going to forget about those who are left behind or those who choose to stay. There's so many programs that obviously they're not they're not getting you out of there quickly but that are constructed to help you so I want my Afghan friends to know you're not forgotten and you never were by me personally and society at large the American people care about your fate and a lot of people are working to help get you out or to help you if you're still there I also want to give uh, my American friends all the resources they can about how to help Afghans. And maybe we can link some of the things that I mentioned in the episode. But there's two websites that are actually like legit vetted information that you can use, whether you're Afghan, Afghan American, or Americans or foreigners can look at this too. But um, like England and France and Italy and Spain and all these other countries, Germany have their other organizations. So I linked it in my um, in my bio on my Instagram, but Modesto Junior College is where my partner teacher Tara works now, and she's a huge advocate for Afghans in America and in Afghanistan. They have a host of resources, some about special immigrant visas, SIV visas, some about P2 visas, which are a new kind of expedited visa for Afghans trying to leave. The other website that has a host of resources and they have German, British, French resources too is womenforafghanwomen.org. So womenforafghanwomen.org has been working in Afghanistan for the last two decades and they have uh, lists of resources. They also have lists of countries who are accepting Afghans that you don't need a visa to be there. And there's a lot of African countries, Benin. is accepting. How are they going to get there? I don't know, but there's They'll countries. find a way. <laughs> yeah. Afghans find a way. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of countries accepting Afghans where you don't need a visa. There's electronic visas to some bordering countries, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, um, Turkmenistan. So I think there's e-visas to those countries. The border that's closest to Herat um, in Western Afghanistan, the Iranian border, Iranian government has said that they're accepting refugees through that border. Anyway, so we'll list a lot of resources if we can, you guys, but but I want my Afghan friends to know we're not forgetting about you. You're on our minds and, and we're going to hope for you and we're going to take action to back that up. Thank you for that. That's mm-hmm. That's a lot of actionable information. There's one other footnote. There's been talk about money and donation money. What are, what are you hearing is best now? Yeah, I would say don't donate money just yet unless it's like a, a foreign run organization. I would not give money to organizations in Afghanistan right now. The Taliban just gained access to a government central bank. They are 
uh, legitimate government, well, maybe not legitimate in our eyes, but they have the ability to squander and steal money in a systematic way now. Um, I would look through that Women for Afghan Women website, and they're they're an organization in Afghanistan, but run outside, and their money is uh, housed outside of Afghanistan. They have a lot of um, information on there about how you can donate. So don't give money to just anybody, but money is basically the best thing to give at this time so that those organizations can support refugees in other countries resettle. So money is important, but be really discerning about who you give it to. So be careful about that. Right. Cool. You got anything in closing, Em? No, I just want to thank you, Jala, for coming on and, and talking about this very relevant and important topic. It's on a lot of people's minds. And I'm really glad that, you know, someone like you and, and Tara are still connected with people. I mean, that's, that's our way of kind of by proxy being connected. And it's important to keep these conversations going because it's really easy to just be like, it's not right in front of me. And, and it's like, you have to keep these real people and their lives in, present in your mind. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. My Afghan friends appreciate it too. And they agree. If if we don't talk about it, people don't know. So let's keep on uh, talking about it and trying to advocate for those that can't advocate for themselves at this point. So thanks, guys. Jala, thanks for coming on. Everyone else out there, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.